every leader's ambition is to retain talent. I look at the success of my organization in our retention. Welcome to the Ad Tech Heroes podcast. Each episode features an interview with today's leaders in advertising technology. If you're working in ad tech and always wanted to sit down and pick the brains of today's experts, then this show is for you. Subscribe and join us each week as we meet a new ad tech hero. Hello and welcome to the Ad Tech Heroes podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about building successful teams. And I'm delighted to be joined by Sean Odenai. Sean is the Managing Director at Maticon UK in Ireland, which is IPG's addressable activation agency. Previous to working at IPG, Sean worked at Mindshare and Microsoft as a senior lead across programmatic and performance. Hi, Sean. How's it going? I'm good, Dal. You yourself? I'm really good, mate. Really good. I'm uh, just hoping the Wi-Fi doesn't drop off. Uh, it's been a bit... Uh, a bit hit and miss at home recently. Um, I, I hope that, the same is for you. <laughs> no, no, mine is good. Mine is good. Perfect. So, no, just to, to, to begin with, it'd be great to understand a little bit about your career, about your career and uh, what's got you to here now. Yeah. Um, so, my name's Sean Odenay. I'm managing director of UK and Ireland in my June job working for an IPG agency. I think I, I always kind of like, was teed up my intro like this, right? And I always kind of need to clarify why it's my dream job and it's not just because I work with great people it's not just because I work with great clients and I deliver my team deliver great work but a black man MD of a media agency someone born in the 90s like me you understand why that's my dream job uh, but yeah Matakai is uh, the addressable part of IPG previous to that I was at WPB agency heading up in the department um, and then before that I was at Microsoft for over eight years. And I, I actually think, I guess, having experienced both buy side and sell side really gives me a good 360 view uh, of uh, how this industry works. And it really allows me to kind of put that customer first in everything I do. Amazing. I, w- I want to touch on um, the element there that I think was, you know, just straight away off the bat was, was, was super interesting and engaging, you know, to, to say that, you know, under the circumstances or under, you know, whatever it might be, you know, born in the nineties, black man in, in media agency, senior position, you know, that's meant a lot to you. Um, and I'm sure hopefully with a lot of people coming up the ranks, right. in the agency world on the media owners, you, you know, you want to look up at someone and, and see yourself in that person to really aspire and, and push themselves up to be in that position. So have you had someone that you've you know, as a role model for yourself within our industry to look up to. Um, and yeah, is there any advice that you would give to people that, yeah, possibly are, do want to, you know, go up the ladder and kind of hopefully be at the way where you're at now? Um, I think it's a really good question. And interestingly enough, we're in October, Black History Month. So mm-hmm. it's quite probably fitting. I'm not sure when you're going to release this, but I wouldn't say I had a leader that I looked up to per se, but I've had many leaders of different cultures, colours, backgrounds um, that I've been inspired by. One of the consistent themes, I would say, that I've seen when I joined the industry, outside of my internship, and I'll come back to that in a second, is that I never really saw leaders that looked like me. And what I mean of ethnic origin, of colour, etc. But the interesting thing about that is that I'd done an internship. I started my career as an intern, intern in Adlink, and my first MD was black. So I actually thought it was normal originally. 
And then I finished that internship, went back to uni for my final year, came back. And then actually, as I started to progress in this career, I noticed that that wasn't the norm. So I was inspired to progress and be that change that I wanted to see. So now, now people can look at me and go, wow, okay, cool. Not me sitting on my pedestal. There's nothing I've done that's amazing, but I can do that because he's done that because there's nothing special about me, right? Um, there is no glass ceiling. Yes, there is, I wouldn't say there isn't systematic racism that transcends every industry. But I guess if I, if I articulate myself in this way, if you work hard, if you kind of have the right mentors, mentees around you, um, you can progress. And I, I just I just feel like um, there's a need to kind of be, be that presence. You know, if I articulate in a different way, actually, when I, I was brought up in inner city, southeast London, where uh, everybody looked like me, talked like me, sounded like me, and I was in somewhat echo chamber. They might have went through the same struggles as me, right? And I think sometimes when you grow up in that background, you're a product of your environment, right? I'm lucky enough, I had my late mum that inspired me and she made sure that, you know, I stayed in school, I went to college, I went to uni. And the only way I went to uni, I noticed a change. And I, I remember going into a shop one day at uni and the need to over, over, how do I, how do I put this? How, I had to kind of go out my way to be polite, go out my way to really show them that, uh, because they were intimidated by me, right? If I let's call this baby about the baby, they saw a six foot three black guy. And then I noticed that, wow, other people that I sit on the board with at the moment haven't gone through what I've gone through. Um, but this is really early on my career. And then I also realized I had to do a lot of unlearning. And at the time, when I was doing that unlearning, I probably felt that I wasn't being true to myself. And in me unlearning, am I taking away some of my, am I not being authentic, right? Um, but actually in hindsight, that unlearning was fine because I got brought up in a certain environment. I said to you, a product environment, so I acted a certain way. And there's a, there's a way you act in different environments, right? And I always use this, use this example. You don't act the same way you do in a football match that you do in a wedding um, service, right? You don't talk to your wife the same way you talk to your friends. When I talk to my wife, I, I lower the tone. I'm a bit more subtle. I'm like, hey, babe, how are you? When I talk to my friends, I'm a bit hype, right? So... There's a need to adapt and unlearn and change in different circumstances. And I, and I realized that really quickly. And that's a big narrative I really try to push to people that, yes, be authentic, but bring the best professional version of yourself to work. And I think that really helped me um, really early on, on in my career where I was, I was trying to navigate through the working environment without changing, without adapting. And there was a need to adapt. And actually, you know, 15 years later, I don't believe that I'm any different man than I was back then. The difference is that I've learned to understand the environment I'm in and adapt. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I, and I, I can agree. I totally agree with you. Um, again, mm -hmm. not born in the 90s. I was on the late 80s, so maybe a little bit, a little bit older. And and it was a similar situation. Sorry, I, I was actually born. I was born in the eighties as well, but I grew up in the nineties. Grew up in the nineties. I, I, I exactly. wish I was born in the nineties, right? <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah go ahead no definitely and 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 i can totally relate to to, to that and I, I think what it goes down to and from my experience anyway is kind of growing up and not knowing that all these different types of jobs existed um from being from a a north indian background myself i, I grew up with my parents wanting me to either be a, a doctor or a solicitor or work in accounting right so being exposed to the world that we're in now whether it's programmatic advertising whatever whatever you want to call it I just didn't know it existed. And I don't know it was in its infancy, even even kind of 10, 12 years ago when, when I joined the industry. So I think the education needs to be there in all the different communities and all the backgrounds. And I think it's not up to the community to learn that there is this advertising industry. It's about the advertising industry to go into the communities and, and to really um, showcase the great things um, and the great people that uh, you know have worked their way up within the industry. So I think, in my opinion, that, that that's super important. Hundred um, yeah. percent. And to that point, actually, um, little plug. Uh, I've been volunteering for a few charities, but one in particular, Media for All, Metha. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of that, um, I'm a mentor for Metha for the last two, year, two, two and a half years, and a big part of that is doing that. How do we do outreach mm -hmm. programs, reaching people? Um, we also do uh, that in IPG around how do we reach certain colleges that are in certain different backgrounds to get real diversity of thought into the workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've, I've mentioned Brish, uh, Bricks and Finishing School a, a few times in different episodes, and I think they're another a, a great, uh, it's another great initiative or project, however, whatever you want to call it, in, in addressing that and, and going after those um, individuals that might not necessarily know this industry existed or feel that, I think that's the key thing, feel they are capable of entering this industry. Um, and, and go back to your point about, you know, adapting and changing you know, when you join the industry, you do feel like you need to go, you know, all guns blazing, exactly like the person sat next to you. And I think, yeah, it's not as easy as that, right? It's not a case of, okay, they're going out drinking, I don't drink, but I have to drink now to be part of the team. And, you know, I've spoken to a few people in the industry that um, have, have never drunk before and uh, and feel obliged that, you know, they're going to be alienated if they don't drink and they're not in that kind of party or drinking culture within the industry which we've seen as is a big part of our in industry maybe it's changed a little bit now but kind of 10 years ago it definitely was um so yeah i think i think that's you know there's a lot of things at play here right i think we're not gonna yeah we could yeah, probably talk no. about it for hours and hours but i think the key thing 100%. here is education communication speaking to people within the industry whether you're junior with your senior and really getting their take on it because someone that's entering now after uni might be might have totally different things um that yeah, they're thinking 100%. about versus what we did um just to build on that actually uh, especially the drinking because i don't drink right <laughs> but when i done my internship I, I did drink quite a bit and I remember doing my internship, doing it, you know, living that media dream and thinking, wow, bloody hell, media is work hard, play hard, definitely want to come mm -hmm. back there. And then I went to my last year of uni and then I, I decided to stop drinking. Uh, I had to come to Jesus moment. And then um, literally, but um, but what was really interesting is uh, uh, I, when I went to come back in the industry, a friend of mine said, like, you don't drink no more. So like, you're going to find it difficult to adapt. Like, what's the point? And I remember him saying that and I was just thought, oh, wow, had you got a point there? And I really deliberated it, with, deliberated it with my friends and family then, do I really want to do it? I don't really drink no more. And a lot of kind of work's done in the pub, drinking, a lot of socialising is done then. But I decided to come back and I didn't compromise myself. Um, and here I am, what, 15 years later, um, 
you know, still not drinking and still socializing with my peers, my clients, my suppliers, still working with them and still progressing into my career. Yeah, I think I think the culture's slightly changed from what I've seen is the younger generation like to be a little bit more healthier, a bit more active and um, it's not so much, you know, the big lunches that would go on to the evening anymore uh, and heavy drinking. It's more, you know, let's do something that is going to benefit, you know, our bodies now and not just, you know, uh, poison them on a, on a daily basis. So, yeah, obviously you're going to have boozy lunches and you still will have, have that. But I definitely think it's uh, reduced from 10, 12 years ago. Mm. It's really funny how this conversation gone completely different to I no, think no, it's about teams and the lab, but it's no, it's really good. No, really I, I, I think I think it's super interesting, and you know, is I, I I wanted to talk about it because I think um, when it comes to diversity, it's something that needs to be addressed. And you know, you mentioning that and and role models and that kind of thing, I think is super relevant, and it should be at the front of most conversations that are being had in the industry because we don't talk about it enough. Um, and and, it, and I think it needs to be addressed from you know from the start. Um, so yeah, I think um, yeah, off, off off the back of that, really um, wanted to understand you know a little bit more about your role within IPG. Uh, and yeah, we can start with what a typical day looks like for you. Is is any day the same, or do you uh, have a, a specific routine? You know, when you wake up to to when you finish finish at night. I think that's really funny because right? uh, we've got an event next week and. I was trying to work out how I uh, introduced and tee up the event. And I decided to talk about uh, two different journeys, my pre-pandemic journey and my post-pandemic journey, because that they are fundamentally different. And why it fits into what we're talking about now and fits into this industry is my two separate journeys also mean I consume media in two different ways now. Because to your point, no day is the same now. You know, pre-pandemic, it was very kind of regimented, you know, as in I was in the office five days a week. Let's talk about my working week, right? I was in the office five days a week, Monday to Friday, uh, up at six, on the train at seven, you know, watching YouTube or Spotify or news content or, or gaming app, um, all the way to Farringdon, to my desk, interacting with my team, then meetings, working, back home for six thirty put the kids to bed at seven, wind down with my wife, watching a different, couple of different shows and repeat, literally. But now, uh, look, I'm at home today. I was actually meant to be in the office and I've changed my mind last minute because I thought some of my team won't be there because of the train strike. That talks to the fact that no day is the same, right? And no day is the same because I go to the office two, three, four times a week sometimes. I work from home two, three, four times a week sometimes. It's agile. It it changes. So therefore, my routine changes, right? And um, when I, I, I a standard work from home day is that I'll be up in the morning still, uh, but I'll be in the gym, right? Come back from the gym, because I'm working from home. Most of the time, I might do the school runs. Never, I would have never experienced the school run, right? In a pre-pandemic world, let's be honest. We're in the office five days a week. I wouldn't even know what a school run is like. Like uh, me and my wife. Um, I always tell my wife about it. Like, I still get quite emotional when I do a school run. I'm like, this is amazing. I take my son to school uh, and he, he waves at me, he walks down. Then when he gets to the corner, he turns back and he waves at me. Like, that's like, that is something that can't be brought. It can't be explained. It, you've got to go through it, right? 
I'm, I'm back to, you know, to my desk at home in this room and I'm working. Um, I'm in meetings, in between meetings. I'm doing emails, but I might be listening to uh, TalkSport LBC. Wouldn't put TalkSport LBC on in the office because actually not everyone appreciates sports or not everyone appreciates Alan Brazil or whoever I'm listening to. So I might have my, you know, pre-pandemic, I might have my AirPods on when I'm not interacting. So it's fundamentally different. Um, you know, what I'm doing, how my day is in a pre-pandemic, now in a, I guess, new world, right? Where you've got flexi working. Um, but the premise of my job stays the same. Delivering meaningful moments for my clients. And that means getting the right teams in place, motivating the teams, um, making sure my teams are best equipped uh, to put out fires, but proactively give solutions to clients, Right. And I'm really passionate about uh, the fact that whether you're in your virtual office or physical office, you're at, you're at work sometimes and you're with work colleagues more than you're with your loved ones. So let's make that working environment amazing to work. Let's make that working environment such a great place to work so we're going to get the best out of our people and, and therefore deliver great work for our clients. Definitely. And it's, it, it's interesting you mentioned that and, and the work-life balance has, has obviously changed uh, a, a lot since COVID and uh, working from home culture. Um, it's also scary that we live very parallel lives. I uh, drop off my son in the mornings and listen to talk sport on the way back um, in my in my car. And I, I know if my wife's been in the car because it's always on on capital rather than on talk sport. So I always make that quick change uh, and, you know, 10 minutes just to myself, uh, you know, that drive back, which is, which is always good. Um, it, you mentioned a few things there about your your role and, and what you do, but is there a specific part of it that you enjoy most? You know, there's so much of my job I love. If I kind of start high level and go that, I love this industry. I think we generally put um, real great solutions for our clients. I love it, and that's not that transcends just IPG. Uh, we do it as an industry. We do it as an ecosystem. Um, so I love the industry. Um, in particular, my job, I love my company, but I love my company because of the people that I work with. It's fundamentally the people. And whether that's my peers, my colleagues, or people that work in my organisation, I love coming to work, working with smart people. Um, and that's what really drives me. Perfect. And how do you find those smart people? I think that's always interesting right i think we're in a, an industry where um you know it's a very big industry now it's got a lot bigger and there's a lot of competition whether it's in the agency world media owner space ad tech space how do you find the best talent to be in your teams are there is there a specific thing that you do or a certain criteria that you're looking at yeah um i think it's a good question what do we do to find great people i think firstly the industry small so Everybody knows everybody or everybody knows somebody that knows everybody, right? And and this kind of speaks to the fact that you should never burn bridges. You know, you know I say that because I, I, I don't know the demographics of the people that listen to your podcast. But you start this industry, you're early in the industry, and typically as a young person in the industry, you don't mind burning bridges and you think it's not a big deal. It is a big deal, actually, because the industry is small, right? So to that point, You've either worked with them in the past or you know somebody that's worked with them in the past and they come highly recommended. 
So that's one way of how we find great people is that have, who have I worked with in the past that I thought was really smart? And that's, that's one way. And I think that's kind of one channel of bringing in really smart people. The issue with that is that sometimes you're then going to always be getting the same type of perspective in the organization. And what I mean by perspective is, again, going back to the diversity piece is white males. Because when you've, when you've worked in the industry as long as me, and I've not worked it that long, right? But And people have worked longer than me, the industry was very heavily dominated with white males, right? There's nothing wrong with white males, by the way. And I've got an anecdote about that in a second. But you need to have diversity of thought. So on one hand, it's small work, small, small industry, everybody knows everybody, let's get people that you've worked with in the past. But there's also another part around engaging with recruitment agencies and recruiters that bring in uh, a selection of profile that represent diverse uh, uh, thoughts. So it's about opening doors. And if you open doors and you get a good selection of uh, candidates um, that are diverse, then you pick the best people. You don't just pick a black person or person of colour to tick a box. You open up doors, have a selection of people that are diverse, then you pick the best. And actually, interesting enough, in my leadership team, my leadership team is really diverse. And that probably comes because you've got a black leader, right? But my poster uh, uh, person of great talent, but diverse talent, is a white male in my leadership team, which is quite ironic. Uh, he's, he's a poster child of diversity. Not because he's the only white male on my leadership team, by the way, but that is kind of, he's one of two, actually, uh, my leadership team. But more because... I was looking for my head of product and strategy, really important role in my leadership team. And I remember saying to the crew, I need a diverse set of people. I got a diverse set of people. And then in the shortlist, once we done, went through the first stage, we had one white male, one, uh, I think it was a black person, one uh, lady of color, and then a white lady. They were all great candidates, but I chose the best, and the best was the white male. And I talked to that because the whole point around diversity isn't just ticking boxes. It's around making sure that everything you do and every time you open up a role, you're getting diverse candidates, but you need to pick the best person. I think that's a great advice because I'm... I'm not sure how much of that is happening. You know, the first conversation you have with a recruiter and then, and then you and you say to them, bring me diverse, you know, a diverse pool of candidates. And like you said, that doesn't have to just be color. That could be gender. That could be background, upbringing, degree, no degree, whatever Correct. it is, right? Um, so I think that's a very good point you mentioned, you know, in building successful teams and going back to, you know, kind of like the topic that we're talking about today, we need to address those questions and, and have at least give it at least a chance, right, for people from diverse backgrounds to apply for the job. Uh, and then, yeah, like you said, you might not give it to that person of color or different type of background. That's the norm, quote unquote. But at least you've given the chance. And ultimately, like you said, it shouldn't be about that. It should be about giving the role to the right person that fits fits what you're after. 
Yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent. It's interesting because that is how you should be shaping your team. You know, though, when I think about, you know, how you shape your team, like it's a for me, it's a combination of your vision. Uh, when I think about how I shape my team, actually, let me not talk for everybody. It's a combination of the vision I have for the organization, but feedback from other people. Because, you know, it's crazy how many leaders out there just make autonomous decisions um, that, that, that they think best. Don't get me wrong, a leader needs to direct, needs to make decisions, but um, there's so much power in perspective and understanding different perspectives that can drive, drive impact for organisations. You know, if I just, if it was just always Sean, everything's going to be like, it's just going to be one perspective, right? But there's so much power in bringing different perspectives. You know, when I think about it, uh, people at work are there with us more than they're with their family, right? So that's why you need to get perspective because if you understand how each individual's they see work, they see how working life could be, and they see how you get the best out of them, you could take you take all that knowledge, you take all that perspective. And as a leader, you form the direction you want to go in. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it goes to, to my next question. You know, what kind of leader are you? What What would your team say about Sean? And you know, how would they describe you? And and, and you've kind of touched on it at the start. Is it's very different how you are at work versus at home. So I think it'd be great to get that comparison. You know, how how would people see you at home and and your family versus uh, versus at work? I think that, yeah, really good question. Um... I would probably lead with, oh, I would say they will probably lead with and say, I'm human, right? And that sounds really basic, right? Uh, but that will probably follow quite a lot of um, adjectives like approachable, um, relatable, honest, uh, transparent. Because, you know, growing up in this space, I always remember some of the greatest leaders I had and it wasn't just their charisma that attracted me to them and that, that's really important too by the way but a common thread of every great leader that has led me was that they were human they were just nice people and I really think that's my superpower you know just being human being nice and being relatable and you, and you think that this is such a big part of is the empathy element to it and being that human and, you know, just being real and honest rather than, you know, just focusing on the job and focusing on your KPIs and, and what's needed. You think that's, that's what people would describe. If, yeah. 100%. If you see the thread of what I'm talking about, I spoke about perspective in one hand. Now I spoke <laughs> about being human. It's all linked, right? It's all yeah. linked to empathy. I think fundamentally, right, every organisation wants to make a profit, right? Make money for the organization, right? Let's be honest, right? That's what we're all here for. Everyone, everyone's there to work for them to make money. But if you strip that back for a second, the most valuable assets in your organization are the people. See, if you can get happy people, those happy people are going to be productive. Those productive people are going to produce great work. That great work can be reflected on your clients. Your clients are going to spend more, deliver more, uh, with you and trust you more <laughs> definitely and you you've mentioned how you attract talent but how do you keep talent 
um, at IPG, is there specific things that you do or uh, the leadership team do um, to ensure that talent is kept within the IPG group? Um, I think that's a really difficult question to answer. And I think, I think difficult because I think every leader's ambition is to retain talent. I look at the success of my organization in our retention, if I'll be honest with you. I think it's hard because we've gone through a period, and I know we're about to go through a new period of uncertainty. We've gone through a period where you've essentially had a war in talent. And a lot of junior people, they care about money. They call it spade a spade, right? But money aside, there's a need to give people more. And when I say give people more, is delivering every other element that makes them say this is a good place to work. So everyone, everyone wants more money, right? I want more money, you want more money, everyone wants more money. Actually, when money aside, people choose organizations because of their leadership. They choose um, organizations because of their culture. And, you know, in an in an in the most articulate way, our culture uh, uh, matter kind is we're not dickheads, right? Everybody's worked for a dickhead before and nobody likes it, right? So how do we all have that empathy and engage with people in meaningful ways and have meaningful conversations to understand how do we make this place a good place to work. And because we do that, I think we are being successful in that retention area. But it's bloody hard. It's bloody hard because there's a war in talent um, and other organisations are starting to realise, oh, wow, we need to start being nice to our people. But I mean, I think people, can, especially employees, they can see through uh, it can see genuine people and I think they need to be genuine in what you do I don't know if that makes any sense yeah no it make, makes total sense and I, uh, I think it's, it's it's so true you know it's not it is a, obviously a, a lot of it is about the money but it's about the culture that you instill within the company that you work for and you know you see happy employees and productivity obviously in turn uh, increases as a result of that um and shifting the focus more to, I suppose, programmatic and how, how we build successful programmatic teams. And, and my experience has always been on the media owner side. So I can, you know, I can talk about this for hours and hours and what you need to do from, from a media owner perspective, whether it's education, having the right tools, being honest, you know, I'm sure a lot of these things can uh, relate to the agency side as well. But yeah, how, how in your experience on, on the agency side, how do you build these programmatic teams to be successful? Um, in amongst, you know, the other trading desks that are out there or the other independents that are out there or, you know, all these small in, uh, like startups that are coming up now and, and, and probably competing with you guys. Uh, more specific to programmatic, how do you how do you continue that success at Matterkind? I think I've mentioned the people, obviously, are the great assets. Uh, but when you speak about programmatic in, uh, in particular, I think where we've got where we've got to get better is how do we bring everything together and how do we um how do we allow technology and the innovation in technology help deliver um our clients' objectives so at my kind specifically we've built 
various types of proprietary technology that allow, firstly, our traders to work better and efficiently, but also technology that allows our clients to really tear down channel silos. And a combination of those two things, coupled with great people, I believe drives that success. Our people and our technology. So it all comes down to that with programmatic, right? Because you can't have one without the other. Um, you know, you need the people, but then you also need strong technology backing it. Um, in terms of our industry, what what excites you about the future? And and yeah, that could relate to the people or technology side, whatever you see fit. Um, what excites me about our industry? Everything. The change, the growth. You know, let's just look at, I, I love talking about video and TV, right? What does TV even mean? It's a good question, right? But I, I love looking at this space because firstly, it's coming into our world, dressable, programmatic. Uh, but, you know, look at e-market ads and stats that they released. And they said by 2023, the average UK person is going to have 12 connected devices. It's a lot and I was playing that back with me, thinking about my device. I'm thinking, actually, I've probably got about nine already. So, yeah, I think that's probably right, right? 2,700 digital interactions per day, which will lead to 100,000 um, opportunities per hour. You know, the average UK consumer is living in an ever-so-digital world. So it's really paving the way for this exponential growth in uh, the emergence of addressability. You know, you know so... Let's put this in perspective. I remember my head of product, uh, my head of product strategy, put this on my radar. You should be 17 years old. So in a year's time, you have your first adult. There's only no TV to be on demand. You know, I, 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 I've only got small kids, right? But I, I see my toddler and he, could, and he thinks he could talk to everything. Microwave on. No, it doesn't work like that, yeah. But that's that's the type of world they're living in, right? So an adult that only knows on demand first means in four years' time, you're going to get your first comms planner that walked into an agency and linear TV is going to be an afterthought. They're going to be thinking about connected TV, on demand, you know, broadcaster bot. And the mindset of people that work in the agency is going to change. So with the emergence of dressability and the evolution of this mindset, it's really going to change the type of people that go into an agency. And, you know, the growth in this space is really going to pave the way for precision. And that excites me. It excites me because it's moving into our world, right? Our world is about that right user, that right... Actually, that's not even our world. That's the marketing world. The marketing world is that right user, right place, right time. And actually, the more and more channels that are emerging channels that are coming to this world where we can start being more addressable. Excited me. Amazing. I've got a final question for you. We usually finish off our, um, our podcast episode with this question. I think you touched on it earlier, but it'd be great if you could elaborate. Um, but if you had a superpower in, in ad tech, what would it be? So I really said to you, I think my superpower is uh, my human attribute. If a blue sky superpower, I probably would say one technology that does everything 
it breaks down every silo. It breaks down every wall garden. It breaks around every channel, every team. It transcends it all. And we just use one technology uh, for all of our clients. Well, it'll be a lot simpler that way, right? Exactly. Imagine what that Lumiscape looks like then. Literally one technology. Amazing. I think that's all we've got time in today's episode. Thank you, Sean, for your time. Thank you, Dal. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of AdTech Heroes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. To see all the show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, head over to adtechheroespodcast.com. This episode is brought to you by SeedTag, the world's leading contextual advertising company. Contextual intelligence allows you to engage with consumers within their universe of interest on a cookie-free basis. By delivering ads into content, we capture users' attention faster and retain it longer. Learn more and reach out to us at seedtag.com.